You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. time in Matthew 25. You're welcome to turn there. Matthew 25. I do want to just say a brief word of thankfulness. I'm hesitant to do so because I don't like any attention being put on me. I want it all to be on Christ. But as many of you know, uh, I was here last Sunday sitting in the front row, was due to be out of town actually last weekend, preaching at another church, was not able to do so because I essentially got in a fight, was stabbed five times in the stomach, and someone stole an organ. Organ is still missing. That person who stabbed me was a doctor. They used a machine to do so. I'm still bitter. No, I say that in jest. For those of you who don't know, I was rushed to the hospital by one of my sons last week uh, and had my gallbladder removed. Fun times. I don't recommend it unless you need it. Then I highly recommend it. But I wanted to say a word of thankfulness to you guys. Many of you reached out via text, either directly to me or to my wife, expressed uh, care and prayers and uh, I will just say, and yes, I'm a heavily biased pastor, but this is the best church to be in if you're going to have your gallbladder removed (laughs) or any other organ. I highly recommend it because this church will be the family you hoped you had in Miami. This church will be that family. And it illustrated yet again to me of why it's so good to be a part of a committed body of believers because of how family cares for family. And it was unbelievable. And it's Something as a pastor, I'm normally on the giving end or facilitating end, and it's sweet and yet humbling to be on the receiving end, and I just want to say a word of thankfulness to you. Well, let me begin our time in the Word by asking you this question this morning. Do you have a retirement account? Do you have a retirement account? Chances are... 25% of you sitting in this room this morning do not. Studies have reported that one in four Americans does not have a retirement account. Furthermore, those who do have a a retirement account, many of which, when they get to the end of their working life, not their living life, but their working life, will sadly, disappointingly, with great difficulty, only have enough in that account that they will probably only receive about $1,000 a month from that account to help sustain them financially. That's what the studies have shown, and it's a difficult reality for many. The concerning statistic is combined with the fact that some economists are estimating that the Social Security fund, if you will, the savings account for Americans for their future retirement 
of which many of us perhaps are tempted to kind of hope that that payment back to us will sustain us, some economists give such a dooming report that some are estimating by potentially as early as 2034 that that national account will be depleted. Why? Well, it's simple math. Americans are not having enough children today to help pay for their parents or their grandparents and themselves and on and on it goes. In other words, the whole system is built upon this idea. You have kids and your kids will pay into an account that there's social security. That money will be taken out of that account to help cover your expenses when you can no longer based on your physical limitations due to driving or sight or other limitations, you can't work for yourself, can't provide for yourself, can't provide accordingly that that account will pay for that. Well, the problem is Americans are at their lowest state of actually having kids than we've ever had as a history of a country. Birth rates are 16% below what it takes to simply replace ourselves as a country. Back to our retirement accounts as a consideration, over the span of a lifetime, the person's average lifetime income is $2.7 million if you had a college degree. If you did not, the average lifetime income is about $1.7 million. The problem is not how much money people have made. There's numbers of variables. Some of you are making well above that amount of money without a college degree. Some of you are making well below that amount with a college degree. So there are, of course, variables. The problem is not how much money is being made. The problem is what people did with the money. And for that, that determines how well prepared they'll be for their future. Well, this brings us to our passage today. Today in Matthew chapter 25... This is a lesson that God wants us to learn. In Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30, God opens up our lives and gives us a sneak peek as to what to expect in the future of our spiritual accounts. If you're new to Grace Church, I reiterate what's been extended to you already, and that is a word of welcome. But adding on to that, let me just say, we have been going through the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, the good news of who Jesus of Nazareth is. He's not simply some Jewish rabbi, not some type of impressively nice guy. He is indeed the son of God. And the reality of what that means, Matthew records these writings, these teachings under the inspiration of no one less than the Holy Spirit, the third member of the triune Godhead, We are now in Matthew 25. Matthew 25 is in the middle of these two chapters known as the Olivet Discourse. That's basically Bible talk for saying Jesus is giving a longer conversation to his disciples, answering some questions of theirs dating back to Matthew 24, tells Jesus about the future. What can we expect? And he's been answering a number of ways, and we'll finish that next week. But we come now to Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. Jesus has just got finished explaining the parable of the ten virgins. and doing so, he taught about the importance of us being ready for Jesus' return, imminent at any given time it could take place. Now he's building on that, carrying that theme on by showing us what readiness actually means. 
So with that in mind, would you follow along with me as I read to you Matthew 25, verses 14 to 30. Jesus continuing to teach here, his disciples says the following, verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done. Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also said, and he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents, here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done. Good and faithful servant, you have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 24, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow. And gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming. I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will, more will be given. And he who and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this parable, we are returning back to a conversation. We interrupted it last week, but in the conversation as it was taking place, there was no interruption. 
It was one after another, after another, after another. And Jesus is keep looking at the same reality about his future return, looking at it from a different perspective, from a different perspective, and from a different perspective. If you look at verse 14, you'll notice what it says here at the very beginning. Jesus says, for it will be like. What's he referring to? We'll go back to verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like. So verse 1 is related to verse 14. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, also at times known in the scriptures as the kingdom of God. Now, this is a major theme for Jesus throughout his teachings, especially highlighted by Matthew in his writings. It was a focus for his ministry. It was a theme for the Sermon on the Mount, the arguably the most influential sermon ever preached in human history. It's the theme for many of Jesus' parables, and it's the theme for this disciple's message here. Whenever you have the story of a kingdom, you have a reality of what that means. It has sort of three implications to it. Whenever there's a kingdom, well, I mean, just to be the king of obvious here, there is a king. Kingdoms have kings. God is the king of the kingdom of God. He is sovereign. He rules over all. It's his kingdom. Well, you have king, that means you have subjects. That means, secondly, you have citizens of a kingdom. People who are under his rule, under his reign. They live in submission and subjection to him, and they do so gladly. And thirdly, you have a place of a reign, where king reigns, where his people live. Initially, in this lifetime of ours, we see his king reigning in our lives, but in time, we will see him reigning in this world. Jesus is talking about the future in this regards. Well, here's the main point of this parable, and I want to just go ahead and give it away right now so that you might not be lost as I unpack it for us. What is this about? What is Jesus trying to teach here? Here's the main point. Everyone will have to give an account to God for what God has given them. I'll say that again. Everyone will have to give an account to God for what God has given them, everybody in this room, myself included. And this is a parable, a story, and it has similarities and differences, and I want to kind of go through these together. First of all, in the similarities, there is a shared opportunity, a shared opportunity. So let's go back to verse 14. A man is going on a journey, and he called his servants. So we're already introduced to several parties in the story. A man who later is referred to several times as a master. And he has servants, not just one servant, he has many servants. And he gives to them, as it says in verse 14, his properties. So what I want you to recognize is there is a shared opportunity that they have from the shared master. And I want you to recognize right away we're faced with the reality of stewardship. Now, stewardship is a term that might not be accessible and that's normally part of your daily vocabulary. Stewardship is just another word for management. So, for example, if you work at a company, T-Mobile, a bank, a law firm, a local Chick-fil-A or Wendy's, and if you're a manager of that company, you are a steward of somebody else's business. And because of that, you will have responsibilities for maybe cashing out the register, giving shifts and responsibilities to other employees. You are a manager. It's not your company. It's somebody else's company. 
And that owner of that company, maybe a local franchise, maybe the CEO of a multinational company, they're hoping they have the right managers that they've placed over their company. And we all know what it's like to go to a place where you just see bad management. And the way we see that is because we can track it because we see the bad employees. I mean, let's be honest, just as a moment of like reflection here, us in the 305 in Miami. What's known as a quick service restaurant industry and our modern day vernacular fast food has a horrible reputation in Miami. In fact, it's so bad, if you get a good experience when you go eat fast food, you're like shocked. You're like, what was this? What was this moment there? You're used to your food being out of order, maybe not being warm, maybe not being right. The service which is delivered seems like you're like interrupting their otherwise really good life. So sorry to interrupt you. And you're sort of wondering, like, is there a manager around? Does anybody see what I'm seeing and big spiritual experiencing? And you know, and they're on their phones. I mean, how much has work productivity been greatly affected all throughout industry by just the invention of the smartphone? I was very thankful to be cared for by a very competent medical staff last week in a local hospital. God's grace, a common grace gift, he gives such trained professionals and scientists and the development of medicine to be able to care for us in ways that if these things had happened to us, oh, 50 to 100 years ago, we'd all be dead. One of the things that I had to do after my surgery was I had to get up and walk around. You've got to get this stomach full of air that they've pumped up when they do the surgery out of you. And the best way to have that happen is to walk, help it dissipate in your body. I was surprised as I did lap after lap after lap, 10 p.m., midnight, 2 p.m., 2 a.m., 5 a.m., I just was hurting bad. I was surprised to watch how many staff I saw just on their phones. Just on their phones. And it made me think how common that is in some places of industry we see that. Like, I, I wonder if either A, your job is done so quickly that you have so much availability of extra time that maybe you should be given more responsibility or B, maybe you're actually neglecting some responsibility and should back to what you're actually being employed to do, which is not to check your social media account and double tap and the like. I say that because we can all relate to that. What's going on here is you have a manager. He has his stewards, his money, his purposes, his name attached to it. They have a shared opportunity to take what is not theirs and manage it well and manage it very, very well. In fact, we're introduced to this term here, talent. You can see it in verse 15. It says he entrusted to them his property, but then verse 15 it says, to one he gave five talents, and to another two. Now, I just want to be very clear. This word is not like, hey, you have an amazing talent for some type of skill, and God gave that to you. That's not what he's talking about here. Like, I don't know if you guys know this, I'm an amazingly gifted harmonica player. I'm so gifted that most people do not appreciate it, and therefore, they're not really, you know, kind of giving me praise. I have concerts. You're welcome to come to it. 2 a.m. Right here. It's, just, it's very, very much a skilled talent of mine. 
No, he's not talking about talent, like you can play the guitar, you're good with people, you're hard working. Somebody's talking about the term here, talent, is actually a term in the New Testament. It's, at that time, as a cultural term referred to weight. It's how you measured something. Like we think about pounds or kilograms. Talent was how you weighed something, but the value of something was whether you weighed it with what the material was. A talent of gold is obviously worth more than a talent of silver, which is worth more than a talent of copper. He doesn't tell us what the material is here. He's just simply telling us there's a talent. There's some weight, some worth of something that's been given. But we know that it has some type of monetary value because we see this being referenced later. In verse 18, it talks about the third servant who, it says, hid his master's money. So there's value to this. It's not like you just gave him like a wheelbarrow full of bricks. Like, hey, you look strong enough. You can handle a bigger wheelbarrow. You're not so strong. You bless your heart. Let's just give you one brick. He's not talking that. He's talking about something of great value. But it belongs to the master. So they have a shared opportunity here. What you notice in the shared opportunity is that there's differing amounts given. One gets five, one gets two, one gets one. The fact that different amounts were given to different servants teaches us that the master apparently assessed what maybe they did not even know about themselves or each other, which is they had differing abilities. We feel that way even today, right? You can see people who have different abilities than we have ourselves. And maybe they've also been given different resources. Maybe they've been given money. They may have been given relationships. They may have been given connections in ways we're like, we just don't have that. And we're tempted to maybe covet that and want that. But the Lord in his mysterious hand, in mysterious hand has said, that's not for you. I have something different for you. The question is not what do you have here in the text. The question is what do you do with what you have? There's a shared opportunity and this is where the paths now begin to diverge. Because we go from a shared opportunity to now a contrasting response. You see very quickly what happens. Verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. Verse 17. So also he who had the five talents... And immediately they take what God gives them and they do something with it. What the master has given them and they do something with it. And as a result of that, they receive a return on their investment. But what we see here is that not everybody goes to work. In fact, we can see what happens, verse 18. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Here's what's so interesting about this. If you thought about this, he goes to work by digging in order that he doesn't have to work by investing and laboring. He's like so committed to what we'll later learn is his laziness that he works at it and doesn't want to be held responsible for it. So there he is, he responds to what the master has entrusted to them and puts it aside. Now, true confession, I am a college graduate. Many people graduate from college in four years. I, being as academically accomplished as I am, 
was able to accomplish it in seven years. Because I'm an overachiever like that. Many people choose to have one major. And they're committed to that. Bless your heart. I chose to have, over the span of my seven years of college, five majors. Most people attend maybe one, maybe two universities. I chose to go to four. Why? Because I was a clueless college child. My first installment of my college education, living at South Carolina at the time, was to go to a school in Charleston, South Carolina. It was a private Christian school. I was too busy enjoying college to let my education get in the way. And my first semester, I essentially was failing college while simultaneously being the freshman class. I don't know what you think we're doing, but what we're not doing is sending you back. I'm the freshman class president. They said, we do not care. That means nothing to us and for that matter, the rest of the world. They said, if we wanted to waste that kind of money sending you back to college, we'd potentially have more success opening the window, driving down the highway and throwing our money out the window. At least somebody could maybe find it on the side of the road and pick it up and do something with it. But you clearly seem to be doing nothing with the money we're investing in your education. You know what? They were dead right. But I was one bitter college kid. Finally, the Lord got a hold of my heart and started to make some better decisions. But God had given me this opportunity through my parents, and I absolutely squandered it. How many resources has God given you that you are possibly wasting? How much has God given you that you are spending on yourself and not fulfilling God's purposes of why he entrusted it to you? My parents did not send me to college to stay up late, hang out with my friends, go from one hangout time to another, do fun things, and not show up for 7.30 English class. Side note. For any high school students here, never, ever, 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 ever sign up for a 7.30 in the morning college class. Just do not do it. Do not do it. Unless you're the fourth member of the Trinity, just do not do it. It's not going to go well. This is the reality, though, we see in the text. We have two of these servants investing well. Two of the servants honoring the master well, one of which is just instead wasting it. The third servant is wasting what the master has given. And it says that he hid his master's money. Two different responses. There is a sad statistic that comes around every now and then by way of reference to both pastors and to Christians that the pastors are responsible for. Did you know that the average church donation that Christians give is less now than it was during the Great Depression in the 1930s? Christians during the 1930s, arguably the most economically depressed time in our country's history, gave 3.3% of their total income to their churches. While today, the average giving to a church is about 2.5%. Interestingly enough, 
75% of non-religious, non-affiliated Americans give to charities, many of them faith-based organizations. So surprising reality is sometimes non-Christians outgive Christians. What we seem to miss here in the text is that God has given an opportunity has been squandered. Resources have been provided, and they instead have been wasted. Which takes us why? The contrasting character. So we've seen the shared opportunity. We've seen the contrasting response. Now let's see the contrasting character. What happens here? What ends up happening is it says in verse 19, now after a long time, meaning it's been longer than expected, the master of those servants comes, comes back, and he wants to settle accounts with them. And it says in verse 20, he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. Here is what I want you to see, is what happens in verse 21. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Jump ahead. Verse 22. He also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. In the original writing of this word here, these words being written by Matthew, it's not, the word is not well done. The word is basically like saying well. It's, it's like saying today, bravo. It translated well done. The master is acknowledging what the servants have done with his resources. And he's commending him. But I want you to see how he commends. I want you to see what he's drawing out as we think about this contrasting character. Because he calls attention to their character and their diligence. Look at what he says. Good and faithful. Good and faithful servant. We, we know they're servants. They're all servants. That was already cleared up for us in verse 14. But now he's distinguishing between them. He says, well done, good and faithful. This is a commendation, as I just said, of character and diligence. He goes on to develop the thought of their faithfulness. The, the servant, he says, has been faithful over little things. And here's what's so remarkable. I want you to notice the idea of the five talents in that time is seen as a great work. Like five talents is like, wow, wow. To put that in numerical value, it's like, okay, wow, billionaire, wow, millionaire. Like, wow, that's, that guy got a lot. Wow, that woman got a lot. That, that, that got a lot of capacity, a lot of blessing, and whatever that looked like. And it doesn't give specificity to what it could have been like. But I want you to see what the master says. He says, well done over the little that I've given you. See, what you have to recognize as a servant is, even what we consider to be a lot to God is but a little. Because the master's capacity and actual ability is so much more than just simply the offerings he gives us. You have been faithful over a little, he says there in verse 21. So then I will set you over much. Same thing is said again with the servant with the two talents. Same exact description. 
What you can see here is the master speaking of it as no more than just a few things. The servant proved himself and what the master regarded as comparatively a low piece of service, a low piece of offering. Now further doors are being, opportunities rather being opened to him. I will appoint you over many things. This indicates that the faithful servant will be rewarded with a position that will give him more scope for more responsibility. Jesus is teaching again here that the reward for good work is the opportunity of doing more work. More opportunity. And look how he describes part of the reward. Enter into the joy of your master. You catch that? Don't miss it. The motive for the servant was not in the reward of the talents. The motive for the servants was that it pleased the master. Their motive behind doing what they did was not for what the master would give by way of return. It's what the master would offer by way of affirmation and relationship. Friends, can I just ask you a question for those of you who are Christians? Why do you do what you do? I've spoken to you already this morning as another father speaking to other parents in the room this morning. Some of you are parents of young children. Some of you parents are older children and adult children. I promise you by way of ominous temptation. The temptation will be in time, God, I have transacted with you. I've done family devotions, been faithful, far from perfect, but been faithful to teach my son or my daughter. When I've sinned, I've asked my children to forgive me that I might be an example of humility and identity in Christ. Perhaps for you, it's not because you're a parent. Perhaps it's you just you're being a Christian ethical coworker. You're a responsible employee. You show up to work on time. You don't milk them for their, their discrepancies of their policies. You see their place of employment for you as a blessing from the hand of the Lord, and, and you're faithful to that, and you are faithful to evangelize, and you're faithful to serve people, and you're faithful to work good for the good and the blessing of your managers, of your employers, and yet you do not get all the time what you expected you'd get in return. These points in life, you and I begin to realize, we get little miniature audits. What was motivating us and what we were doing? Were we motivated because we wanted the joy of our master? To hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or were we distracted by the talents themselves, by the hope of what we were going to get out of it? Friends, this is the difference between Christian immaturity and Christian maturity. When what we do, even seemingly the best of things as taught in the word, do not bring the numerical result that we otherwise expected they would or the timeline in which we expected, is it enough for your father to be pleased with you? 
to sustain you and fuel you for more labor unto him. So we notice that the reward here that the master gives is not based on numerical result. It's based on faithful labor. Now contrast that of the two servants to the third servant. Look back in the text. Verse 24. He also had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. The master gets right to it when he assesses this person's character. Verse 26. His master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. Slothful is like an old school term meaning lazy. You wicked and lazy servant. I want you to see what the third servant does here. He becomes an excuser by becoming an accuser. He excuses his lack of action by accusing the master for his stated, believed action. Notice what he says. He says, you are a hard man. How he describes him. I knew you to be a hard man. Who goes on to describe where you reap where you did not sow and you gather where you scattered no seed. What's he doing here? He's basically blame shifting why he has not done what he's supposed to have done in blaming on the master. Friends, nothing has changed. This has been going on since Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of time. And I want you to see it. This is a common blame shift approach people even take today when being confronted with their sinful choices. They'll commonly do one of three things, if not more than just one of these three things. Think of the ways people try to avoid accountability for their sins. Number one, they distort God's word. It's not clear what you're saying, God. It's not clear. It's not my fault, God. You can't communicate clearly. Number two, they question God's word. That can't be true. That's not what my experience tells me. That's not what the professionals around me tell me. That, this... This thing here obviously can't be true. I mean, bless your heart, it means well. They meant well, but it's obviously not true. Or third, they distort God's motive. It's not fair. It's not fair. God doing his work is obviously wrong. It's not fair. I will hope him to have been more just. Apparently he is not. I hope to be more loving. Apparently he is not. I find God to be a hard God. And I'm resentful. You know why? Because what I think is just would have been the following. What I think would have been more loving would have been the following because those things did not happen and because I stand in the center of all truth as the one who is omniscient and all wise and all perfect and perfectly just in my assessment as a finite human who can't even determine the day of my birth or the day of my death. Nevertheless, I can put God on trial and judge him for not being fair. You see the, the logical fallacy of this. You see the foolishness of this. But this is so common. I encourage you, friends, keep these in your back pocket. Put this in your mind as you're interacting with people and ask them, think with them, hey, 
Friend, I, I think you're distorting God's word right now. I think you're maligning God's character right now. They distort God's word. They question God's word. They distort God's motive. These are the things uh, commended Vaughn Roberts in his book, God's Big Picture, as he describes these three things. This is what Satan was attempting, tempting Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3 to do, still working today. It's interesting to note back in our text in Matthew 25 that the master accepts the description about himself as reaping what he did not sow and gathering what he did not winnow, but notice he drops the word hard. He drops it. Didn't say agree with that assessment. So what does he say? Verse 26, you wicked and lazy servant. So one is commended for being good and faithful. The first two are And the third is being confronted for being wicked and lazy. The laziness of the worker. Same capacity, but not the same activity. Which takes us finally to the contrasting consequences. Contrasting consequences. Two are rewarded, one is punished. Look at it. Look at what happens here. They're entering into the joy of their master. They're being given more. But this other one has a talent taken from him. Everyone who has, will, more will be given, and he who has an abundance, but from the one who has not, even that will be taken away. And in verse 30, which we're going to talk about more next week, verse 30, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in the place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'll speak about that last verse in more detail next week because it's in the same conversation Jesus is having. But what I want you to see is that this passage is either bringing comfort for some people or it's bringing concern. It's encouraging some here this morning with praise or it's warning others here this morning of punishment. It's promising promotion or it's reminding of a future perishing. Friends, can I ask you this morning... What has God given you? Not what has he given those around you. We love to read the Forbes top 10 wealthiest people in the world. We love to track people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. We love to sometimes throw shade at such people that we don't like who are wealthier than us. Let's ask that question. Let's ask the question, what has God given you? Not just simply the possessions you have. What about the relationships you have? What about the money you have? What about the abilities you have? What about the time you have? Everybody gets the same amount of time. Everybody has 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week. I think what's difficult to recognize is how often, whether you're single or married, whether you're young or old, how much time an opportunity God has given to his people that's being absolutely wasted. Do you know, for example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, he wishes all Christians were single? He says that. 1 Corinthians 7, I wish that all were as myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of a kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widow, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. Why? I mean, Miami is majority single. Don't know if you know that, but it is. You would think 
for a city that's majority single, particularly for those who are Christians who are single, you would see an increased activity of kingdom work, increased activity of opportunity in serving and loving and caring and reaching and ministering. But yet so often, how can we even be influenced by a worldly way of thinking, which is singleness often can equal, if we're not careful, selfishness, self-centeredness. One of the reasons why I don't want to be married is because I want to share my money. I don't want to share my time. I don't want to share my bed. I don't want to share my toothbrush. Now, that's gross. You shouldn't do that. My wife is saying, amen. I won't tell him, honey, the times I use your toothbrush without you knowing. The question is, what are you doing with what God's given you? What are you doing with what God's given you? In your marriage, in your singleness, with your possessions, with your capacity, with your time, with your relationships, how are you loving your neighbor? How are you bringing attention and fame to God? How are you loving and caring for others? How is the church of Jesus Christ better for your investment of your capacity in a way that if it was not true, not invested well, it would be known and seen. Some of you are asking, well, where do I start? Well, it's like a retirement. You start today and you start even if it's small. I challenge you, write down on a piece of paper or type on your phone a list of things that God has given you. And then pray, God how can I better serve you with what you've given me? There is nothing you have, and I listen to me to say this with complete terminology. There is nothing you have that is not from God. There is no physical capacity you have. Sight, hearing, there's no possession you have automobile, clothes, there's no relationship you have. There's no, you don't even have inanimate objects like pews to sit on if God did not create all of these molecular atoms to hold all this together. Even life itself is being sustained. Colossians 1, read it for yourself. Every single thing you have is from God. The question is, what are you and I doing with it? How is our life a reflection of, man, we are investing well or embarrassingly, how is it an indictment that we are wasting? I want to say by commendation, so many of you are investing well. So many of you are examples here to others of us here of how not to waste your life. Which is why I say number two, after you've written down what God has given you and you pray, God, how can I better serve you with what you've given me? Then look around and find someone who you think is doing this already and ask them how they learned to do it. How they learned to do it. Learn from each other. Avoid the countless excuses. I will when I get more time. I will when I get married. I will when we have children. I will when I have more money. I will when I get a bigger place. I will graduate when I graduate from college. I will when I get a different job. Friends, if you think that way, the problem is not your circumstance. The problem is your heart. One of the most common fallacies Christians will say is, I will give more money when I have more money. No, you won't. Your problem is not a money problem. It's a heart problem. It's a heart problem. If anything, money will just ruin your heart. You should treat it very carefully. First Timothy says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Love God, love others. Serve the Lord by serving others around you. 
For those of you who do not identify as a Christian, who cannot think of a time in your life when you've surrendered your life to Christ, this is first and foremost not a question of what are you doing with your time, what are you doing with your money, what are you doing with your relationships, what are you doing with your capacity. This is a question of what are you doing with your person. Are you investing in the kingdom of men that will perish? Are you going to invest your life in the kingdom of God? How do you do that? By recognizing Jesus is not just a wise teacher who returns as a righteous judge. He is a loving savior. There is nothing you can do or not do that will keep him from you. He accepts everyone who comes to him in humility and says, God, I cannot save myself. I'm not saved by my good works, by my good investment. I'm only saved through faith in Christ. I put all of my life in your hands. And I know when I do so, I will return a thousand times over what I could ever hope to receive in this life. For this life is passing and temporary, but life with you is forevermore. I remind you by saying the following, everyone will have to give an account to God for what God has given them. There is an entire industry that exists to help people manage the money they have. Financial advisors sit with people, they take a look at their assets and their liabilities, they listen to their goals, they consider their timeline, and then advise them what to do. The sooner you get with such a person in your life, it's believed, the sooner you can sit with them and learn, the better it is. Why? Because you'll invest sooner, you'll make better decisions financially sooner. Today, a man named Matthew is sitting with you as your spiritual advisor, And he shared with you and with me the words of the master, who's speaking them himself. That's the irony here. One day he will return, and he is saying, are you listening? Will you just not be a hearer of the word? Will you be a doer? Will your life show that you've invested in Christ or invest in the kingdom of yourself? May Christ find us to be faithful with whatever he gives us, one talent, two talents, five talents. It's not about what we're given, it's what we do with what we're given. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.